I started thinking about this. One of the things, one of the reasons why I want to do Hosea is because I don't know Hosea very well. I've read Hosea, and I kind of think I got a grasp of it, but I want to know it better. Um, we, we finished up not too long ago a series on Esther, and I found that I learned so much more about Esther than I thought I knew, or, you know, more than I knew, that's for sure. And Hosea is one of those books that oftentimes people aren't thrilled about studying. I even uh, even reading online a a while back a guy that said, Hosea is too depressing. I just haven't got around to teaching it yet. And and I'm thinking, wait a minute. Hosea is hard. It is hard. But it also is full of hope. It's it's full of mercy. It's full of love. And so we're going to uh, take the next couple months and we're going to just wrestle with some of these things that are in the book of Hosea and, and what's going on there. And it's, it's going to start with this. We just got to think about something. I want to plan a thought in your mind. Like, what is God like? For the skeptic, you know, it's this idea, can God be known? Is he personal or impersonal? Is he near or far? Is he feeling or unfeeling? What does he think of us? Or does he think of us at all? And how does he feel about us? And those are weighty questions because the answers to those questions shape how we relate to God. And God has chosen to reveal himself through the Bible, primarily the, the major way is through the Bible. There's different books of the Bible. You guys all know this. And each book looks at God and thinks about things from different angles. And Hosea is like that. It has a different view that sometimes we don't see. Because in this series on Hosea, what we're going to look at, basically, is we're going to look at God's side of the story. So much of what the Bible is, is God is, it's about God and it's about how he deals with people, but this is actually going to look at it from God's view, God's point of view. And it's a love story. Now, when I say love story, we all kind of get different ideas in our minds about what a love story is, right? We search on Netflix for rom-coms or we, you know, we, we, we have this idea and oftentimes people think, oh, like a fairy tale, happily ever after. No, no, not exactly. Not exactly. You know, or, or people think, oh, is it more like a, you know, more like a modern indie Hollywood you know, movie that basically it, at the end it leaves you so depressed that you just want to kill yourself because you're like, wait, that was a love story? This is terrible. See, we want a happy ending, but oftentimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes when a movie works out and it's just a little too pat, right, and it's just this nice, they lived happily ever after, I'm like, come on, that's not real life whatever, but I want a fairy tale happy ending. But when I see it, I'm like, whatever, right? Because real life and real love is complicated, and it can be difficult at the best of times. And this book is a love story, but it's a complicated love story. It's about scandalous love. And we're going to look at some themes that are going to run through this whole book, themes of Hosea. We're going to see the horrible truth of sin, we're going to see the price of redemption, and we're going to see the beauty of covenant faithfulness. We're going to see these things as we work our way through this book. They're going to keep coming up. They're going to keep, keep showing themselves. And this is, Jose is typical Hebrew writing. Uh, uh, in that day, as people wrote, and especially with Hebrews, and we see this a lot of times in, in the Old Testament, they're, they're not as concerned about things like, are we doing this in its linear order? Sometimes things get jumped around because it's more important to show it this way than it is that way. Or you'll get the point better if I say it this way than that way. And so uh, writing, it can jump around time-wise. It will, we will see repeating cycles this is a typical way that they would write. We'd see repeating cycles of things being repeated to us. Um, setting the time we're at. We're, we're, we're between 760 and 710 B.C., all right, before Christ. 
and the kingdom, the, the, the nation has been divided into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. I'll just put it up there real quick. If you see the blue, that's the north, that's the kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes, and the yellowy, orangey, whatever color I'm wearing is the, and I did that on purpose, is uh, the kingdom of Judah, Right, and so we have these two kingdoms. They've been they've been separated due to misunderstandings and disagreements and war and problems and all these things. But right now, and I, I should show you if you look at the top right of that map, you see Assyrian Empire. All right, here's what's happening: the Assyrian Empire is growing at an incredible pace in, during this period of time. But they are occupied with some northern. Uh, uh, people that are fighting them, and, and off to the east and, and to the northeast. And so the, the, so the kingdom of Assyria is growing by leaps and bounds, but right now, as we read the book of Hosea, they are occupied with some other battles. They're occupied with some other battles. It's like this. I have a friend um, that I went to grad school with, and he's from Britain, right? And one time he and his wife came to spend a week with my wife and, and I here and uh, like a vacation for them. And we took them to the beach. And I said, well, let's, let's take them to Williamsburg. History, right? right? So we go to Williamsburg and he's not impressed. He's not real impressed with our ancient history because he leans over. He says, Bob, my church was built in the 1400s. This Bruton place is new. <laughs> We're like, ah, oh, didn't think of that. So we walk past Bruton Parish, and there's the big open grounds, and there are reenactors. And he said, what's going on here? And I said, you don't know? Those guys in the red, that's your team. Those guys in the blue, that's my team. My team's about to kick your team's butt. And we become a country. And he was like, is that really how it worked? And I said, do they only teach you the wins in England? Is that all they teach you? And he was like, oh, well, I have a lot more history to learn. Okay. I just said, Cornwallis, Lafayette, Yorktown, George Washington, any of those? Doesn't ring a bell. Doesn't ring a bell. I said, really? And then he looked at me and he said, were we fighting the French at that time? Yes. He goes, oh. This is our B team. I was like, oh, oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> and I said, but I'll take it, right? I'll take it. Yeah. And so, and so what's happening? Assyria is, is they're engaged in wars. And so they're not looking south at this time. But they're going to. Because this area has become incredibly prosperous. During, during the time in the Roman Empire, Part of Palestine was known as the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And so this area, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, they're becoming very prosperous. And Assyria is basically saying, once we take care of that dude and take care of that dude, we're coming. We're coming for you. But they don't know it. They don't know it. They think everything's great, right? They have this prosperity that's going on. Um, they, they, they're, they're doing well. And so what happens? They're falling into sin. They're sinning against God. They're sinning against each other. They're committing spiritual adultery. And how do they do that? Well, they didn't trust God. They trusted their own strengths. They trusted their own thoughts and ideas. They trusted other nations. They made political alliances with other nations and thought, we're going to be fine because of that. We're strong enough to hold off Assyria. They just had no clue how big Assyria had gotten. And they worshiped other gods. They 
they began to commit horrible practices as they worshipped other gods and idols. They were spiritually complacent because things were fine. They were spiritually complacent because they couldn't see the gathering storm that was coming. They thought their alliances would keep Assyria at bay. Now, we can condemn them for this and their short-sightedness, but we do this also when we're comfortable. And let's face it, this culture elevates comfort above everything else. And when we're comfortable, comfort becomes our God. And when we get too comfortable, we tend to forget God. We tend to trust ourselves and put our, put our trust in other people, put our trust in bank accounts, put our trust in uh, political alliances, whatever it could be. We, we start letting our eyes wander from God. And so we see that they're making that mistake, but we can make that mistake too. Our culture loves comfort and how we can be as comfortable as possible. So we think that adversity and difficulty is bad. But oftentimes, when we go through adversity and difficulty, that's when we seek God and trust God the most. And so there's a problem there. I want to grow, God, but I don't want you to hurt me while I'm doing it. We all, we all agree with that. Nobody wants that. But in this time, the people of God did not think that Yahweh was relevant to their, every, their everyday lives. They didn't think he was enough. He did not seem useful. And so they went their own way. They paid lip service to God, but their hearts were not his. And so today we're going to look at, there's three points in this first chapter, but today we're just going to look at the first point, a betrayed lover, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Bere, uh, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman. And have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so in the first verse, when we look at this, this gives us historical background. This tells us the kings that were alive during that time, the kings that were going on during that time in the 700s. It tells us, it gives us geographical things that we can go with, but we don't need to know too much about that. It just tells us a little bit. But then the Lord speaks to Hosea. Notice that, notice that it's, it's, I think it's key, key here in all of our lives. When God wants us to do something, first he works in us. He speaks to us and works in us to get us then to speak to others or serve or work in others' lives. And here he starts by speaking to Hosea. He starts with him. And he has work for him to do. And in verse 2, we get one of the most controversial statements of the Bible. Go and marry. And some translations will say, go marry a whore. And you know, I think about it. I try to put myself sometimes in people's shoes. I can imagine when God says, go and marry, Jose's like, yes, yes. I want to have a wife and God's going to show me. How many times have we prayed in the past, God, show me the one, right? There's there's over 100 people here that may be praying that prayer right now. I don't know, you know? But I remember praying it. God, is she the one? I think so. No. Oh, crap. <laughs> Boot. God, is she the one? Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, we, 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 and, oh, and here, Hosea's like, God's going to tell me. I'm going to hear a voice. This makes it so simple. Yeah. Hot dog. I mean, you can imagine it. Well, he's, no, he's Jewish. He would not say hot dog. 
<laughs> but he's excited. He's excited. Right? And then go marry a promiscuous? What? What? And her name is Gomer? That's not a name you're seeing in a lot of baby books right now, right? <laughs> I, and you know what? Just my luck. <laughs> There's somebody here or somebody listening online. That's, you know, I'm, I'm going to say something and they're going to say, what's my middle name or something like that. There's not many gomers around lately. Okay, let's just leave it at that. But imagine Hosea. He's like, yes, wait, what? Promiscuous? Adulterous? How could God do that? How could God do that? That's a legitimate question. Before we address that question, I want to address a bigger one. Let me say this. This is not some kind of a universal stereotype about women. This book is not that. Or men, for that matter. Sometimes I like to read older commentaries just to see, and uh, a guy, he's is more than 100 years old, the, the commentary, and, uh, and he started going into this little side rant about the nature of women. And I'm just like, oh man, oh man, I want to punch my computer screen right now. Because this is what I noticed. He could say this about, and suddenly make, out of Gomer, make generalizations about women, but I flip back on what he said about David. And you know, when David cheated on, with his best friend's wife, got her pregnant, and then when he couldn't figure out a way to get out of it, he just had his best friend murdered. That guy didn't go, men, that's the way men are. They go around cheating on and murdering their best friends. He didn't make that connection, right? So let's not make any kind of connection here. Let's just be sure about this. These are things that men and women can do both. It doesn't matter. This is what's happening in this situation. And, and partly because it lines up with God and his people, Understand, all of us here, men and women, we are considered a part of the bride of Christ. So there is a certain feminineness, that's not a word, I don't think, uh, in our identity, simply because of that. And so, Gomer represents the men and women of Israel. She is us. But this whole idea of God telling one of his prophets to marry an adulterous woman, creates a lot of debate, a lot of debate. And uh, I probably looked at 15 or 20 commentaries, and they all argued with each other tremendously. Even, even somebody like John Calvin. John Calvin said, this must be a vision. It's not a real-life event. He thinks that maybe, and he kind of writes this out in his commentary, that, that, um, that Hosea got up and said, men and women of Israel, you are adulterers to God. That is why I kind of pretend married an adulterous woman, but I didn't really. Okay? That, no. No, I think this is true. I think this is what happened. Now, the arguments are often about whether she, is a, she was a prostitute before she was married or if this came up after she was married. It's not super clear. Um, there's a man named Walter Kaiser who's probably the greatest at least one of the greatest living Hebrew scholars in the world. And he has, I read his thing, and it's huge, and I didn't quite understand it, but I understood his conclusion. He said, I don't think she was a prostitute before he married her, but I wouldn't bet money on it, okay? So we don't know for sure, but God says marry her. Enter into a covenant relationship with her. You're going to speak to my people, and so you are going to speak to my people out of your own life. 
they're going to hear you talk about it and they're going to see it in your life. So you're going to marry this woman who is going to cheat on you. And Jose, Jose is going to live this out and it's going to hammer home the message. And God chooses to do this because marriage is a covenant, not a contract. You know, contracts, the whole basis of a contract is it, is it outlines how you can get out. With a covenant, that's not the basis. And he wants them to see this. He wants to enter into a, a marriage covenant because God has entered into a covenant with his people. He's done that. He does that multiple times. He, he, he reframes it in different ways and shows it in different ways. But I always like to look back to the covenant with Abraham. And we've talked about this here before, so I, but I want to just rehearse it just real quick with you. God says to Abraham, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. And it tells us that God had, he put Abraham to sleep. And I think that's because Abraham would not do it on his own. Because you, you, you think about it. How do you, when you enter into a covenant, and this is, and this is what's involved. The, the, maybe I should say this first. When you entered into a serious covenant, what they did was they, uh, they called it cutting a covenant. And they would ugh, cut animals in half. And they would place them on either side of a ditch so the blood flowed to the middle and then downhill. And then the greater person in the covenant would walk through the blood that was created, and it would be like this, all right? There'd be various animals. If it was of the utmost importance, you'd have like that many animals working their way up in, in importance, and they'd be on either side, and the blood would, would flow down. And the greater person would walk through and get the blood on their feet and the blood on their garment. And at the end of the walk... What they're saying is, you may do to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant. Now, stop and think for a second. God says, I'm going to enter in a covenant with you. Who do you think is most likely to break that covenant? Yeah, you. Your arms are too short to box with God. There's no way, there's no way you can measure up to God. He's perfect. So if anyone's going to break the covenant, it's going to be you. So God puts Abraham asleep because I think Abraham's first thought was, bye, Felicia, I'm out. I'm out. I am not sticking around for this because this is certain death for me. And so what does it tell us? In Genesis 15, God went through. You may do to me what we've done to these animals if I break this covenant. And then God went through again. In the place of Abraham. You may do to me what we've done to these animals if you break the covenant. What an incredible deal, right? If, if Abraham blows it and he's going to, God says, I'll take the punishment. And he did in Jesus. He did. Jesus was the ultimate recipient of the punishment of the Abrahamic covenant because God promised him that. So God entered into a covenant and he tells Hosea, I want you to enter into a covenant. And the key to a covenant is, and God says this to Abraham, I will be faithful to you. Even if you're faithless, I will take the penalty and I will be faithful. God is very clear about sexual morals in marriage. They're designed to communicate something about intimacy. And faithfulness is the key to the covenant and faithfulness is the key to intimacy. It's a promise that two people make to each other. It's a promise that God made to us. 
And so now we can look at this. We can look at this and say, how would God do this to Hosea? And I understand that feeling. A lot of the feeling that we have about this is, is, is really foundational is, is because of our culture. We, we want comfort. We avoid pain. Why would anybody take upon, take upon themselves something that was incredibly difficult and incredibly hard? And it's not wrong to want comfort, but sometimes pain and difficulty is necessary in our lives. When I was a little kid, back in the dark ages, um, with penicillin, the thing was, they, they hadn't worked out a reliable way of doing it orally, and so they did it buttily. They shot you in your butt with a, with a, uh, with a shot. And when I was a little kid, I, uh, I, got, I got sick. And they finally said, oh, we got to give him penicillin. And I think I was five years old, and I'm in this uh, hospital in uh, uh, Almogordo, New Mexico. What does that matter? I don't care. It's an Air Force base. And... Um, and so the doctor does this thing. I don't know if they do this anymore. I haven't seen them do this anymore. He goes over and he pulls out this thing. And Well, when you're five, the needle was that long, right? <laughs> this guy's going to... But it was, in reality, about three inches. Because they want it in, right? It'll kill it. And he sticks it in this glass jar, draws it out. Meanwhile... I'm having a conniption fit, right? I'm watching this going, oh, 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 you know, and my mom's like, it's okay, Robert, it's okay, it's okay, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to be fine. And so and then he takes it up. You ever see the, he clicks it to get the air bubbles to the top and he squeezes it until a little bit, it goes Preet, like that, which to me is like a death knell. I see that little squirt at the top of the needle and this is what I did. Pim, right out the door. I bolted. <laughs> I bolted, he's going to stick me with a lance. <laughs> and so I'm out, and he's like, hey, right? See, because I know I got an advantage. My mom is blind. She's 95% blind. She just sees fuzzy stuff, right? So I could be 10 feet away. She doesn't know I'm there. So I'm thinking, all I got to do is find an exit. I know the way home. It's about 10 miles, but I'm willing to take that risk, right? Because that man right? He's going to pull down my pants and stuck me in a, right? I get home that afternoon and my dad comes home from work and he's like, I'm very disappointed. I said, ah. he said, your mom told me that three people had to lay on top of you <laughs> to hold you down while that you got a shot. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And when I get bigger, it's going to take more because <laughs> I'm going to hit somebody. That, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. It hurts so bad that for a couple of years, I went to school sick rather than tell my parents because I knew what was coming at the end of that matter, right? So literally. And so what's happening there? What's happening there? They know that this penicillin is the key to my health for me getting better. They know that. And they know this is going to really hurt me. But in the end, this pain is going to be turned out for good for me because I will get better quicker. I'll get better quicker because of it. So it will help me. We tend to avoid pain because we take the short view. 
we don't understand that oftentimes in difficult times, and it's not wrong to avoid, not, you don't walk towards it with open arms. I understand that. But sometimes when I'm in the middle of a painful situation, it helps me to stop and think, God's going to use this someday. I got to get through this because God's going to use this someday. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no pain in your life that will not be redeemed by God. That he will not turn and use for good. And I know there's people here, you've gone through incredible pain, and that seems impossible. But he promises it. He promises it. He will redeem it. And I think the thing is, we're like, we need to think like Paul sometimes. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We all love power. I'm all about loving. I want some power. And then he says, I want to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'm not all about that. I don't get excited about that. But Paul says, I know I need it. I know it will happen. And so we, we listen, we read things like James. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Understand God is at work. God has called Hosea to do something great for him. It will involve suffering. But don't take the short view. There is a long view. I've told you these things so that you... In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so Hosea is looking that way. He understands, I'm a prophet of God. He has called me to this. He's going to use it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to bring something good out of it. And we see in this book, God's people, they've abandoned him again and again. They've given themselves to sexual sins and violent sins and oppression and greed, a lack of caring for the poor, they are trusting alliances. They're trusting political things that are wrong, that, that will not do what God's going to do. And they've been involved in religious sins. And in the Bible, there's many ways to describe sin that, that are rebellion against God. But there's one that's going to be hammered home in this book over and over and over, spiritual adultery. And this helps us see how God views our sin. This helps me see how God views my sin. This can help you see how God views your sin, spiritual adultery. Because the way we talk about sin sometimes kind of minimizes it, you know. We make it impersonal. I made a mistake. It makes it sound like an oopsie or something, right? I slipped. I stumbled. But it's not impersonal. It's very personal. It is rejecting and denying our intimate relationship with God. In this book, make sure we are not Hosea. We are Gomer. We think he's not sufficient. We think he's not reliable. We think he is not relevant. And this book shows us how God views our sins. This book shows us how God feels about our sins. And it does it in a way that we can relate to. Because if you think about it, you think about the times where, 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 where things have affected your heart. Maybe like a betrayal, an abandonment, having your heart broken. And the level of intimacy affects the level of pain. You know, if you're, if you're at a stoplight and, and the light turns green, you know, and you don't just hit the gas right away and some guy behind you um, hits their horn, you know, and, and what happens then? You're like a little bit ticked, right? You're a little bit PO'd. And so you, you're, you might think, well, maybe I'll just wait a couple more seconds and see how long he can honk his horn, you know? Or um, I knew one person that, that when the guy honked, the person got out of the car and said, it, it won't start. It won't start. And the, and the guy's like, ah, so he gets out. So they hop in and pull up next to him, driving along the road like, ha, ha, you know, and uh, yeah. you probably shouldn't do that, right? You probably shouldn't do that. You shouldn't tell them they're number one. You shouldn't do any of that stuff, right? 
But here's the thing. Somebody honks at you. You don't go through the rest of the day going, my life is ruined. I'll never recover from this. It's just some jerk you don't know. Why? Because the closeness of the person directly relates to the level of the pain. So if this pain is caused by a close friend, or for some of you this pain is caused by a child, or is caused by your spouse, or is caused by your parent, it magnifies because of the proximity. And it's very complex. If someone close to you hurts you deeply, you're angry, but you love them, and you just, it's this myriad of, of things. If you've ever dealt with two people that are in, in something like this, it can, get so, it can get so complex and crazy. You know, it's like, I'm so mad at you, and I love you. Or somebody will say, how could you do this to me? But I want you back, right? All these emotions that are so complex, and it's going on in us. And we get a glimpse of the heart of God because God is going to show us the complexity of his emotions in this. We are going to see a side of God that we rarely see. He's going to let us have a glimpse of his heart in a very deep way. And the whole range of emotions, even anger. We will see God get angry. We will see God pronounce judgment. And yet, he will turn right around and pronounce his love and say, no, I'm going to bring you back. He pronounces judgment and then he turns around. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her, woo her back. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. He's talking about Israel, the nation, the Jews who have committed adultery against him. And he's like, you have to pay for this. I'm going to bring you back. This is not the end. And understand here, this is not the picture. Hosea is not a godly man stooping down and marrying an unworthy wife. This is a picture of a godly person relentlessly pursuing and wooing and loving an unfaithful spouse. Because this is the picture of God with us. And so we need to take time, maybe examine our life, think about it. Is there spiritual adultery? What am I tempted to love more than God? What captivates your thoughts? What grips your heart? In moments of desperation, where does your mind go? In moments of anger, where does your mind go? In moments of turmoil, moments of sadness, where does your mind go? This reveals who and what we're trusting in our lives. Because we're good at identifying the sins in other people's lives, we're not so good at identifying the sins in our own lives. And we need to understand when we see the heart of God, it helps us be compassionate with people who are struggling also. It helps us be loving to people who are going through difficult times. Remember, God did not go looking for a faithful people to make into his people because if he did, no one would have made it. God is looking for soiled, faithless people so that he can turn them into a spotless, beautiful bride. And this is good news for us. Good news. In my own life, before I was a Christian, and even some after, I was self-absorbed. Life was just about how I could have fun and how I could feel good in many different ways. And I was thoughtless, and I didn't care who I hurt along the way. I would use people and things for my own pleasure. I, I'd use women for my own pleasure, not caring about them. And then Jesus came into my life and he started changing me. And, and I, I admit I still sinned, I still struggled, but one day he brought this angel into my life, a vision of loveliness and grace and beauty and just a, some, a vision there's a word for that. It's called pulchritudius. 
It's a vision of beauty. You know, Bev, <laughs> this is a little over the top. Uh, I think you went a little far on this one. Um, oh, my wife writes my sermons. <laughs> so she put that in. So I met this woman. She taught me love. She taught me faithfulness. She taught me sensitivity. She loved me with all my baggage and all my shortcomings because I am Gomer. I am Gomer. I am soiled and stained. And she loved me. She loved me because Jesus loved me. She saw me in light of Jesus. And so we see, as we look at this book, we look forward. Jesus became the ultimate Hosea. He came to the earth in the flesh to show me and you that God loves me, God loves you in a way that I can relate to. Jesus lived it. He loves us. In the point of this book, he pursues us. He pursues us with a love that is unending. In 1 John chapter 1, we studied this not too long ago, we saw that God is light. God is not the light. God is not a light. John says God is light, absolute light. Wherever God goes, there is no darkness. That's why John says we need to walk in the light because the light exposes darkness. It exposes the darkness in our lives. If you're walking in the light, the light is continually showing you what you're doing wrong. If you're going through life thinking, man, I'm doing pretty good. I don't have much. I don't have any sins going on, right? I'm doing pretty good. You're wandering away from the light because the light will continually expose. The older you get, the more it exposes. It's kind of depressing that way sometimes. And, and when we read Hosea, I think as we leave here today, I, I, I get homework assignment. Ask God to show you where you may be falling short. Say, God, I want to be in your light. Let your light expose. Show me. David says this. David says, Lord, search me and see if there's any wicked way in me. He says, God, reveal it to me. Show it to me. Show me where I may be wandering. And then you pray that the Lord of light will illuminate your life and show you, here's what I need to do. I would encourage you this week to read Hosea, at least chapter 1. You can read more. But keep in mind this. Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. We have a God who loves us. We've entered into a covenant relationship with, us, with him. And he says, you may do to me what we've done to these animals if I am unfaithful to you. And then he says, you may do to me what we've done to these animals if you're unfaithful to me. And he takes the burden, he takes, he takes the sin, he takes it on himself so that we have no blame. We have, this is so key, no shame. There's no shame now in Christ. And we can walk freely in the light. And I would encourage you to be thinking about that. God, be the light of my light this week and see what he illuminates. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your, your word. We thank you for this book a book that we will wrestle with and struggle with, a book that asks hard questions and sometimes they're not answerable. And yet, Lord, this book shows us your heart and your incredible love for an adulterous people who have gone exactly opposite of the way you've asked them to go. And yet you pursue them. Thank you, God, that you pursued me. Thank you, God, that you are in the business of pursuing people 
all over the world and wooing them with your great love. Help us to be a part of it. Help us to have the great joy of being a part of what you are doing on this earth. In Jesus' name.